Hi, and welcome to Jackie Winter Gives You the Business. I'm Jeremy Wartman, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Lara Chambaker and Bianca Bremhem. Hello. Hello. Hi. <laughs> It's <laughs> so late every time. It kills me. Uh, it should be consistent. I'm the same every time. You should be expecting it. <laughs> Here at Jackie Winter, our roles put us right in the center of the action, in between client and creative, so we get to see all sides of the process. Each week, we come together in the lounge room pillow fort that is our recording studio and dissect three different links we've come across during our recent internet travels. We use these as a jumping off point to look at what's shaping the issues, processes, happenings, and ideas across the creative industries today. This week, we're going through our open tabs and we'll be discussing the question of multiple styles, how to draw a startup, and why you might be attracting bad clients. As we do once a month, we're strapping on some blades and taking the longest land bridge ice skating tour over to New York, where we are joined by North American managing agent and producer, Bianca Bramham. Bianca, welcome back. What have we missed in New York since we last spoke? May you have been to a psychedelic lodge in <laughs> upstate New York by any chance? <laughs> You know what I did? And it was terrifying. I can't remember. I feel like it's been forever since we've recorded. It has been forever. You know what? I've been spending a lot of time over in the West Coast and we ran our very first open tabs in North America and it was in Los Angeles. So that was very exciting. Oh, yes, that is exciting. Yeah, we've got a whole bunch of new swag that we um, have been taking around as well. And I'm not sure when this is airing, but actually, you know, next week, we're doing a bit of a giveaway for a bag that we've kind of done with um, Colin McRae and Bagu. So very exciting. So check out our Instagram exciting. to see that. Laura, how are you? Hot. 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 Hot and sick. Hot and sick. Oh, that's, that's such a good combination. Double threat. Yeah, it's real good. <laughs> yeah, I'm sweating up a storm. I mean, nothing different really. But uh, otherwise, I'm real good. I won a few games with Settlers of Catan on the weekend. That was good. Score. Yeah. How are you, Jeremy? Uh, I'm hot, sick, and tired. So I've got I'm building upon, I'm, I'm just putting layers of a kind of misery threat. on top of everything. Layers else. of misery. Well, <laughs> should really, be the name we're of our new podcast. Great this week, are we? <laughs> <laughs> let's, let's turn we'll those crowds upside down. Yes. Loopy's okay. And I'm excited to chat to you guys today about this stuff. Well, get us started, Laura. You are bringing us something from Twitter. Are you a tw- are you on Twitter or do you just kind of pick up I'm these like, links? I'm like on Twitter, technically. Like I have a, I have a Twitter account and like I look at it every now and then. I don't tweet. Because what would be the point to the like six people to follow me? But I do read Twitter and I guess like my biggest Twitter intake comes from Bianca though, like when Bianca <laughs> shares tweets, which is exactly where this came from. So Bianca, you shared this tweet on our professional development Slack channel recently. And it's from Meg Robichaud, who is a very successful commercial illustrator, but in many ways she works in quite a different capacity to what we normally deal with, which we'll unpack actually throughout the show, not just on this link, but she used to be the illustration lead at Shopify and she's currently working in-house at Lyft. Uh, and she also some time ago now penned one of my favorite medium articles, which was all about how like drawing purple people doesn't mean you're being necessarily inclusive or diverse in your illustration and, and representation of people. And it's a, it's a great read. We'll link to it in the show notes. But yeah, Meg has written a lot of things over the time that I have hugely resonated with, but this tweet was I guess such an interesting flag of just how vastly different the various areas of commercial illustration are. So, okay, firstly, the tweet reads, and her handle is at Meg Draws, and her tweet is, y'all, whoever out there telling illustrators that they need to find their style needs to stop. We just went through illustration portfolios and hard passed on anyone with only one style. So she's a Slater designer looking for some people to work with them. And this was really, really interesting. When I read this, my gut reaction was like, what in the freaking world? 
is she talking about? Because I so often feel like just the complete opposite to this. And clearly everyone out there is giving totally different advice. Uh, Shocker. Shocker, I know. But uh, yeah, like once I stopped and I thought more about where Meg specifically was coming from, I realized that she's seeing things really from the point of view of someone looking for an in-house illustrator on a kind of work for hire model, most likely, whilst I'm coming from the world of like one-off projects and licensing and where, you know, kind of a singular style reigns pretty supreme. So yeah, this question of whether an illustrator should focus on one style or multiple is one that comes up all of the time, (laughs) like actually all the time. I don't think I've ever done a panel or a talk when, uh, you know, someone in the audience hasn't asked me this. Uh, And it's just so hard to answer. And I don't know that there actually is a definitive answer on this because as we can clearly see, people feel differently and different things work for different situations. But that is the lazy kind of answer that I, (laughs) I tend to give. And because it's something that we all get asked time and time and time again, I thought perhaps we should attempt to tackle it on the show a bit today. So yeah, look, the tweet has like a actually a pretty overwhelming response from illustrators who loved what Meg said and they were like really relieved to hear this, which kind of surprised me a bit, but I do I do get it. I, I think, you know, of course it's a relief to learn that you don't necessarily need to find the one singular thing that you're the best at and can instead spread your skills out across a range of looks. But I have to say though, this response probably feels to me like one most likely to lean towards those in the kind of the earlier days of their careers before they've figured out something unique that they're really good at. Because once you do figure that out, there's kind of no going back. That said, like, I think we do have to consider that the requirements for an in-house illustrator, someone who will be with a team long-term and need to develop works either in an existing style that they already have or work to create options for entirely new styles. Uh, and then, you know, the needs for an editorial or campaign artist are pretty different. So I would like to chat to you guys about the pros and cons of each kind of, you know, this singular style versus multiple. Bianca, I want to start with you. Like, what is your personal and professional opinion on this? Do you think it's better to have one strong style or multiple? Or does it change depending on what kind of career you're looking to have? I love that you brought this up because I had the same immediate gut reaction as you when I read Mm. this. I was like, what? Like, that's, that's not right. But then I kind of like, I was like, oh, no, Meg's coming from this this situation, which is like, I guess, very different to our needs. And I, you know, I guess you've kind of answered your own question here because it absolutely, both personally and professionally for me, like I feel that it changes depending on, you know, your goals as an illustrator and the kind of career that you're looking to have, exactly as you said. So, you know, we at Jackie Winter like work in a very specific subset of the illustration industry where I think you just mentioned that majority of the time our artists are being commissioned for one-off commercial art or editorial assignments. And so for these assignments, our artists are generally being approached because their work is stylistically the right fit for whatever the client or the art director is Mm. looking for or is wanting to, I guess, communicate or commission for a particular project. And so for projects like this, it makes sense for the artist to have a very strong, consistent voice. You know, there's a lot of pressure that comes from an advertising or an editorial commission, whether it's time pressure or trying to please a number of stakeholders who may not be visual people themselves. So it's it can be in the artist's favor to have a strong and consistent style because the client wants that reassurance of knowing what they're going to get at the end of the process. But that being said, it's not always black and white. And within even the work that we do, which is mostly commercial art and editorial there is always room for move and you know style like it's it's broad and and I don't know if I really know how to articulate it I'm like you know it's crazy that I'm on this podcast Mm. because words aren't you know words aren't (laughs) what like what I'm great at but you know I guess like style like it can be extended to how you actually see the world and how you solve problems both kind of like conceptually and visually and it's the choices Mm. that you make both with content and the visual language that you speak 
and the overall aesthetic qualities of your mm. work. So yes. So I think, you know, when we're kind of talking about working in-house, so say maybe that's a team, you know, like an in-house illustration team at a company like Google or Dropbox who have a very specific kind of like illustration style and a style guide that their in-house illustrators need to work within, or even if it's your in-house somewhere a little bit more broad where, you know, maybe you're at a motion design studio like Buck and you're an in-house illustrator there, but you need to kind of like be flexible and and work in in different styles depending on the project that comes in. Like that's, I think, where you, you definitely need some flexibility in your style and be able to kind of like work to other people's styles. But I think for me and the work that we do and the work that I really resonate with, like having some kind of like strong and very iconic voice and style and almost like kind of like visual vocabulary and the, but, but having the ability to translate that voice across different Mm. mediums, different contexts, you know, when you're dealing with different content and audiences, I think that's what's really appealing to me about having a strength, the flexibility in that. Yeah. Yeah. And I think of someone like Craig and Carl, who we represent here at Jackie Winter, whose, you know, voice and illustrative style is so strong and recognizable and something that they've been, I guess, honing in and been very kind of protective of over like a a, a number Mm, of years but it's always so wonderful and exciting to see like how Craig and Carl are able to really push their work into different territories like whether they're working you know they're collaborating with a 3D D artist or they're you know doing something that's more of like a like a physical installation or I saw something that they did recently for the Helsinki Art Museum for a modern life exhibition, which was very different. Like that was probably the most, the the biggest departure of their work that still kind of felt like Craig and Carl that I've seen them do recently. But I guess like they're in this, you know, anything that you see from Craig and Carl, it feels like Craig and Carl, but it's just so exciting to see how far and how broadly they're able to kind of push the work that they do, but have it still feel like them. Yeah, I completely agree. And I think maybe this is unfair, but for me, I've kind of almost... There are very few people, I think, that do the multiple styles thing well. And that's just because of the plain fact that it is hard to be really, really good at lots of things. And, you know, often if you're looking at someone in terms of like representation or for a particular, you know, one-off piece, you want someone who's the very best at that thing. And, you know, that's just not really feasible if they're doing 9 million different things. I I often find a bit of a red flag when I see someone who has like heaps and heaps and heaps of styles in their folio because... To me, it often ends up being someone that's just creating lots of derivative work and not actually doing their own thing. And you often find that there's a lot of copycat kind of stuff in there. That might not be a fair assumption, but it's often been the case. Jeremy, I want to know, what's your thought on this? How do you answer this question when people ask you? And how does your advice kind of differ depending on what they want to do? Oh, my God. I mean... (laughs) You hate me for bringing this today. (laughs) No, I don't. I I, I just find like Twitter just generally really triggering in so many ways and reading this thread, like just really... Forget the tweet. Think about the question. (laughs) No, the tweet is important though, because like, I think it, it, it represents like kind of this attitude as well, like, you know, in kind of art and design where these kind of, I think the whole idea about kind of style and kind of how your career is like such a, a a big thing. And like, I always talk about illustration as an industry being like kind of this huge tent that you kind of need to kind of find your kind of place in. And I hate when these kind of, these just hot takes are just kind of put out in 160 characters that are completely like, I just think think it's really kind of dangerous because Mm -hmm. like, you know, it's very specific to like kind of this person's job and this person's attitude, who is also an illustrator as well. And that's why I don't like answering this question because I don't like, 
my answer isn't going to be right for every artist. And when people ask this in like a panel, I'm like scared of answering because I don't want that little snippet to be taken and for that to define how they how they build their career. It's a scary thought. No, no, it, it is. You know what it, I mean? I agree with you. It is super scary. And like, yeah, and also, and it's really, and I think it requires more kind of detailed conversation, but I think that conversation needs to start from a more nuanced perspective. And then just Twitter as a conversation venue, I think is so problematic. It's like everyone's just posting their links to their own folios and maybe like, what do you think of my work? Like, does it work kind of this way? And it's like, oh my there God. There were a lot of illustrators we know in that list. I know, I know. But it's just like, I just think, I think Twitter is problematic. In terms of the the question itself, I mean, yeah, like it's all contextual. I mean, everything you guys have said has been, you know, very kind of accurate. And I think there's really a case to be made for kind of both things like I just I think there's enough room Mm. in this industry for kind of both things but I do think it's really this is why it's did you this is really interesting because Meg was actually a guest on the podcast I'm going to be discussing kind of link as well so like I think that was a really great venue to kind of dig into that a bit more contextualize it a bit more we'll talk about that in a bit especially when you're talking about yeah like how illustration is being used in a product perspective where one person may be designing kind of a system and you need to get people in and they have to iterate kind of on that system that variety is kind of huge. Um, but it's kind of like hiring a, it's like hiring an employee versus hiring a specialist or hiring a consultant. You know, like you're hiring, when you're hiring an employee, you don't want someone who can only do one thing, right? You want someone who is multi-skilled in all these different things you're going to have to do. But if you're hiring someone to work with once, you want that person to be the absolute very best at that one thing, you know, someone, some sort of specialist. And that's the kind of the difference here. I guess, okay, what I'll ask you then, because this is another question we get asked all the time, obviously, being in the position that we are, what do you, both of you, sort of look for then? What do you prefer when you're looking for artists for representation at Jackie Winter specifically? I think that's a really good question. And, and again, that kind of depends on how the work is kind of coming to us. Like, so sometimes, for example, we you know we need to find a certain artist based on kind of a certain need that we're kind of coming mm-hmm. in with. And then that is also kind of looked in context of the rest of their folio. So, you know, there was a period where we really needed kind of people who are doing realistic kind of watercolor or kind of oil painting illustration. And that really kind of related to a much more kind of older guard of illustration. And I kind of think that that was a lot more kind of relevant, I guess, you know, maybe kind of 20 years ago or mm. so when, yeah, the way there, because there were so few illustrators working, um, you had to be, you had to have that variation because that's kind of what kept mm. you kind of in business. But now I think, I think we're almost kind of seeing like going, people are going back to that model in a way. Mm. And I think that, especially if you look at kind of what's happened with photography, like, yeah, so many photographers have had to be kind of generalists because the the market got kind of so crowded and that's kind of what happened there. So bloody hell, I'm so sorry, but can you just rephrase the question again? Because I just, I had a thread that I was following that I lost. Um, The question was, what do I look for? So yeah, what do you look for specifically for... Artists right, right. When you represent, like for representation at Jackie Winter. Cool, cool. So again, if if an if an artist like if we're going out to seek something and the and the folio has lots of variety in addition to the things that we seek, sometimes I might make the deliberate decision to say, okay, on the Jackie Winter folio, I'm going to present all those kind of different things because that work is there and that's kind of great and it's good to have that kind of generalist who you can get together with one client and form that kind of good bond with. Mm. But that doesn't mean that's kind of you know that's always what we're looking for. If someone sends us a folio with kind of one style, I'm not going to hard pass on it. You know, even if the style. Well, I'd say overwhelmingly, the people that we that we represent have a pretty singular voice. Oh, absolutely. And yeah, you need one or two generalists. That's it. You know. Well, look, I I kind of encourage different things for different people, kind of in their careers, and this is why I'm really interested in kind of thinking about how people present their folio, and this is kind of what we're working on the most, and kind of we'll unveil our own kind of take on this kind of Mm. soon. But I kind of think, yeah, there's there's a lot of room to do lots of different things, and I think that 
again, a folio is kind of a statement of where you're at at the moment as well. Mm. So it doesn't mean that that kind of can change. And I kind of feel that it also can change depending on who you're presenting it to. And we did delve into that in in an earlier episode, gosh, probably like two, three seasons ago. (laughs) Exactly. So I kind of think, you know, there's, I think this whole kind of pressure that artists feel that they only have one shot to kind of make their kind of impression and that like that when they make their folios, this thing kind of cast in stone is not the truth. Mm. So it's like, you can be a generalist, but like maybe you focus on one thing at one time. I mean, that's kind of the mark of any artist. Like the work is always kind of evolving. So well, exactly. And maybe then it's about when thinking about how to put together your folio, it's factoring in that fluidity and that flexibility so that when things do change, you aren't having to like entirely redo your folio from scratch, Mm. which is something we're thinking about a lot with our kind of website as well, because it's a really, it's a very real question. So, so yeah, look, to close out, I wanted to just reference a tweet that came in response to Meg's uh, original tweet. And it came from Aaron J, whose handle is at Randy Otter. Lovely, lovely name. And his response was, this just comes across as someone who can't be asked to hire more than one person for their different projects. And Meg's response was, yep, that probably is what it is. And I, I mean, look, it made me laugh, but it's also, it's like probably, it's probably true. And it's also probably fair in some ways. Like, can, can you expect them to hire a million different people for all these different things? Or does it make sense that they're looking for someone who's a kind of more of a generalist? Jeremy, what do you think about this? Look, I, I think, again, I think it's probably true and there's a lot of kind of merit to it, but we're never going to know because it was done in Twitter in such a rude and obnoxious <laughs> way that we can't actually have a bloody conversation about it normally. So it's like, yeah, like I would have loved to kind of... Twitter I've, I've Maybe you should well, join the conversation, Jeremy. Fuck off. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, there you go. There's my IRL tweet for you. Yeah, um, it really yeah. was. <laughs> but look, I, I mean, yeah, th- there, there is some kind of merit in there. And I kind of think that, yeah, it's it's tough. People who are commissioning work are under a lot of pressure. I mean, the, the pressure to kind of pump out content is kind of very real. So I think that, yeah, like the more, and I think, yeah, illustrators kind of need to be kind of in touch with that. And I think, again, like if you are someone who wants to work in the tech industry and like you can identify that's the need that is there kind of right now so bring that to your folio if that's kind of what like you know actual clients are actually commissioning are saying so i think there's kind of there's definitely kind of merit in kind of in this person's needs and i think the response kind of tells you you know what that gives you a good idea kind of what the temperature is like at the moment but look it's a hot topic i'm really glad you kind of brought this up it segues nicely into the second um, piece but sure yeah does. i would avoid being on twitter at all costs from here on <laughs> we'll move on from here My link for the week comes again from the fantastic blog subtraction, the home of Koi Vin, who is the principal designer at Adobe. We've talked about him and his blog before a few times here. And the actual link is a podcast um, that he kind of wrote about. It's called How to Draw a Startup. And it's described as a podcast miniseries about illustration's evolving role in the tech industry. The show explores why illustration is utilized, how illustrated brands are crafted, and where illustrators fit in creative teams. So I'm not going to talk too much about kind of Koi's take in it, but like I want to talk about the podcast itself because it's something that I, you know, immediately kind of devoured and kind of forced everyone else here to kind of listen to as well. So a bit more background. The podcast is the work of Mark Grembau. Um, I hope I'm not butchering his name over there. But uh, and he's an illustrator himself working out of Boston at the company Circle, where he is the illustration lead. And that's an interesting job title to have. And I think something that's kind of really kind of emerged from me listening to this series. And he created this podcast, and I'll quote him here. Um, He says, to gain a deeper understanding of my industry as well to celebrate illustration's role in our daily lives. And over the course of seven episodes, I think he's done a pretty amazing job at it. Now, we talked 
in a very kind of superficial way in this podcast before on how so much illustration tech always looks the same and how or why that might be the case. And I think it's great you know, that this actually connects to Lars Link as well in kind of some ways. But what Mark is doing here is really just taking a much deeper dive into it and not only having some amazingly broad and detailed conversations with some incredibly impressive people, he's also putting it together in a really novel way from a narrative perspective. And I just have to say, it's it's obviously a huge labor of love. I mean, not only he writes scripts, interviews, records, edits each episode, and he also does the music, which I thought was wonderful. Oh, much more than we're doing. <laughs> <laughs> well, this yeah, he did these seven episodes, I think, over the course of a year. So it's kind of like it's it's a real kind of, you know, he, I think he focused on kind of making this kind of narrative. It's a proper production. And it it's is really, a, really well a done. Very, very proper production. So and look, kudos to him to get it to all fit neatly into a seven episode arc mm. where he was able to hear from a pretty wide variety of voices and not kind of gloss over the finer points of things or have it run on for 77 episodes. Like, you know, some <laughs> some podcasts that we might know. I think we're at 78. <laughs> 78 so look, digging bit deeper here i think it's safe to say that if you listen to our podcast um this one here you either a know a thing or two about illustration and or be heavily used products such as dropbox google airbnb etc which have all been featuring illustration more and more in recent years and that brings me to the most notable part of the show the actual people who's gotten on to talk about their practice and specifically how they use illustration in their work or products i'm not going to go through all the guests there's a lot of them there um, but one of them includes kind of meg who mm -hmm. you know, is at lyft currently who had the tweet before um, there's also jennifer for Horn, experience design manager of product illustration at Airbnb, Hannah Swan from Asana, Kevin Walker, Buck, also holder of the creepiest photo. Did you see Kevin's photo at all? Oh my God, it's so scary. Um, Koi himself, um, a host of amazing other people from places like Pentagram, Facebook, etc. So yeah, really great. And look, I have to admit, I haven't finished listening to the entire series yet. I'm definitely on my way, but I had a really strong positive response to the initial batch of episodes, especially when they look at the work of Ryan Putnam. And Ryan was a lead designer at Dropbox and currently an art director at Facebook Messenger. And through, you know, he has his own kind of studio called Putnam Studio. And through this, he actually developed something called the Putnam Process, which is basically his methodology for developing illustration systems at these companies. And then what, what the podcast does is kind of use that in the first episode to kind of form like a loose structure to how these kind of processes and standards kind of are established and explore that from a narrative perspective. So I've been throwing this around a bit lightly here, but reading over some of these job titles here really crystallize how embedded illustration is in Silicon Valley in the tech world. And I know for a lot of smaller Australian businesses, it's impossible to really get such granular levels of speciality. But obviously, these larger firms can afford to actually have these people on staff, something that I think is going to be really interesting and disruptive to the broader freelance based system that I think is most prevalent at the moment. So to that end, this is what I love most about Mark's approach here. He's one of those people who is working this new type of job and this, you know, this in this new type of world. And he's using this platform as a way to kind of solve his own problem and actually dig deeper to have these bigger conversations to see how he can integrate them into his own practice. And I think that always makes for the best kind of content, self-initiated or otherwise, whatever it is. And I'm just going to quote him again in his closing remarks where he states, in a sense, today's tech industry is one of the new frontiers. For generations, technology made its mark in illustration. And for the last several years, we've been returning the favor. We've demonstrated that illustration can forge an emotional connection with users. By establishing processes and standards, we've delivered brand systems that have lasted and adapted. We've made technology products and brands more inclusive and representative. We've brought in the industry's palette with editorial techniques and approaches. We infuse illustration into everyday technology and communication and help create a more design literate world. And time and time again, we changed. We adapted, finding new ways to engage and express. And with countless opportunities yet to be found, we're just getting started. And I should also mention that every um, episode is fully kind of transcripted, which is great again. So that you 
you don't have a retinal. If, you, if you're someone who doesn't like to kind of listen, all this information is there textually as well. So as a team of producers here, I think there's some invaluable knowledge to be gleaned here, especially when it comes to how you sell your services, how you price things, how you talk about your work and how you gauge whether it's effective rather than just relying on subjective feedback. And I always love picking off knowledge from other industries. And this is no exception. So as always, I want to open this up a bit more just to see what the rest of everyone here thought. So Bia, I wanted to turn to you first. Like, What was your biggest takeaway here? Did you learn anything that you can see integrating into our own process or perhaps something that you think more artists should be integrating or considering with their own practice? It's like a broad question because I don't think we've really spoken too much in your intro about kind of the process and what really Mark and especially like Ryan are, are kind of setting up here, which is all about like building. It's almost like taking like a, and I liked that at one point in the podcast, he did talk about, you know, like a, like a writing style guide that a copywriter might kind of like bring to a brand or, you know, it's really like, it's, it's kind of like an extension of like maybe a, a design style guide where you're kind of like talking about like all of the different sort of like, like how you use the client's, the, the brand font or the brand colors or the brand type and things like that, like, like setting all of these rules in place. And then, you know, how do you get, but doing that for illustration. So how do you get, how do you set the illustration tone for a lot of these products and a lot of these products that, you know, are being talked about on this podcast are things like, you know, they talk about Dropbox being like needing illustration to kind of like really help explain these abstracted concepts, like, like the cloud, like what is the cloud? And so, you know, how do you build an illustration system for a group of essentially illustrators who like the, the illustration, like how do you build an illustration brand and then a system around that so that, you know, the, the illustration can be flexible for different kind of uses, whether that's like a contextual use or whether it's more of like kind of like an emotional use and, and how do you build like a system around that? So that's like essentially what this, this podcast delves into. And from a broader perspective, I mean, like I don't have direct experience working in like in that kind of area of the industry, like I'm obviously not on an illustration team, but I do, I'm, I'm kind of familiar with it just from sort of reading a lot about this online and reading a lot about even, I guess, like in a, in a separate kind of industry, which I feel is quite the same, you know, you, you, Jeremy, you mentioned before the, the role illustration lead, which kind of makes me think about this kind of like new role that sort of emerged in the last couple of years of like a design manager, which is someone that's really more overseeing the design process rather than perhaps being a designer themselves. And like, how do they, how do they get the best out of those people? So I don't know what I learned from this that, that like I could perhaps like apply to my own process. Like, I think there was some really interesting things in there. Like, I think it's interesting always to hear how, people talk about their work. And I think it was interesting to kind of get the, some of the guests, them maybe thinking about like hearing the guests talk about that real balance of how do you set up a system and how do you set up all of these tools? How prescriptive can you be in documenting a system and but then how can you kind of like maybe allow for some flexibility and trust in the people who are implementing this, this system to, you know, bring 
the magic and bring some of their own kind of thoughts and and autonomy into it. So it's, you know, you like that balance of being prescriptive versus trusting in the process. And I, I think that that was probably like the the main takeaway for me because that's something that, you know, you know, we do obviously like I train a lot of producers here and systems and processes is something that we use a lot in Jackie Winter because, you know, we try and really objectify the creative process to make sure that like the process is a process and that there are milestones that say a client needs to check in and sign off on so that, you know, we're not wasting anyone's time and that the process is efficient and it's, it's, it's a nice process to work through. And, and, but there is always going to be that flexibility. And I think that kind of like area of flexibility and really being like malleable to whoever it is that you're working with and taking into account the artist that you're working with and the client and the situation. I think that's what maybe makes a good producer rather than someone that can just kind of like follow the rules is someone that can actually like, like be empathetic to the process and the situation. So that was probably like the most interesting thing for me. I mean, the most interesting thing was like that the, I didn't realize that the Google doodle was started because the founders of Google needed an out of office because they were going for burn, like they were going out to Burning Man, so they decided to start the Doogle. <laughs> yeah, That's look, why I- all of our Jackie Winter <laughs> illustrations started as well. I think, like, just to note quickly, like on a less kind of abstract level, there is also a really good discussion in one of the episodes about using mood board and reference to guide a client before you start doing any actual kind of work. And I just thought, like, I mean, that's obviously something we do, but I think the the host, even though he's like quite a successful illustrator, it was like something that he kind of doesn't build into his practice that much. And I just thought that was a really good discussion to listen to about how to kind of guide a client to be a bit more specific about their wants and needs before it gets kind of more personal and more real and um, actual work is being created. Yeah, look, I think it's I think the inside is the most kind of interesting thing here, especially kind of knowing a bit more about kind of how these kind of teams work and where these kind of things come from in terms of how people think. I think as a producer, that's probably one of the biggest takeaways that I had in terms of actually also thinking about that a lot of these people who are illustration leads and kind of commissioning illustration like are illustrators themselves. And so I think that is, you know, there's some potential conflict there in some ways or they kind of that's kind of something that kind of needs to be kind of navigated but also just um seeing how their process has evolved like you know the whole idea of kind of these style sheets is that they're supposed to be kind of very strict and they're supposed to be you know you're supposed to kind of it's supposed to be very kind of clear what you're supposed to do and i think it was interesting hearing from the dropbox team especially how it wasn't until they kind of loosened up that they were able to kind of find their style where it's like yeah you're hiring these illustrators and they say okay you have to draw with this kind of line weight and kind of use this kind of composition how that kind of actually kind of didn't work and how they had to be a bit more kind of open so yeah i thought there was um there's a lot of insight there um laura one thing I wanted to raise was that this is obviously only looking at a small slice of the whole illustration landscape, but obviously a pretty growing one. Mm. The whole idea of creating these illustration systems also raises bigger questions about how the value-based licensing model will survive or, you know, of what this new breed of illustrator will look like who is working in-house and expect to continue rolling this kind of system out or working in this kind of house style. So I'm really of two minds here whether this represents more of a threat or opportunity. I'm just kind of curious what stood out to you and where you stand. Yeah, wow. So I, I realized that I accidentally chose a link this week that, that so perfectly ties in with your one, um, especially as you said, like Meg is such a key voice on this show. And this show, How to Draw a Startup, is a, is a real deep dive into in-house illustrators and, you know, really those who play a key and long-term role in determining whole illustration systems for companies. And for someone like me who's so entrenched in the industry, it was really refreshing to listen to something about illustration that actually had a whole lot of perspectives that I don't usually come across. That's not to say that I didn't agree or resonate with a lot of what was said, but yeah, it's very much about 
in-house work and, and in the tech industry. And that is quite a specific area that we don't see a lot of because we represent freelancers and the direction of these kind of underlying systems is often like largely been decided on by the time we're working with an artist to create something. So like throughout the series, as you said, Mark chats to Ryan Putnam. And one of the first things that he says is that he thinks of himself as more of a designer than an illustrator. He says he designs illustrations and illustration systems and calls himself an illustration designer. And I think this is like really key to kind of understanding here the difference between what someone like him does and what a lot of artists, you know, do that we work with. Now, like, I mean, a lot of this show is about the incredible embrace of illustration thanks to the sort of tech revolution. And it goes into some really fantastic detail as to why and how this has happened. But really, I mean, it, it does make total sense to use illustration as a way to simplify and humanize and communicate what is often quite complex, dry tech. And this episode has seen people like Ryan and all the others that Mark chats to on the show to find ways to prove that illustration isn't just a pretty coat of paint, right? That it's this fundamental tool for visual communication and a unique way to create meaningful emotional connections with customers. And if there is value in illustration, there is value in illustrators. As Mark puts it, though, if, if we illustrators want to remain relevant and employed in the tech industry, we can't take the position for granted. We need to educate, evangelize and professionalize. And I agree with this in so many ways. But then also coming from my background where I'm so committed to the licensing model, I can't help but feel that this shift might see us losing in some way that ecosystem that can actually sustain illustrators who don't work in these super like sort of homogeneous vector design focused styles, you know? And yeah, like you, Jeremy, I'm in, I'm in two minds, to be honest. I think on the one hand, you've got this booming industry for in-house illustrators where they can earn a full-time salary doing this work. But Ryan is right in that it functions much more like the way we're used to graphic design functioning, where you are fully flexible in your style and you're creating something totally different depending on the context for that one client versus what we're used to with freelance illustrators, where they have this strongly defined style or maybe a few, depending on how you feel about the first link. And they're kind of tapped by all different sorts of clients who really want to engage that artist's specific voice and skills. So it's like, you know, I think about it almost like being a copywriter versus being like a feature writer. And you look at someone like Meg, who's featured on this series so much and the role that she played at Shopify that project was two years long, right? So like it was this long-term ever-evolving development process and that was her single job during that time, which is so vastly different to what we do. It involves like a really different work process and set of skills. And I think many illustrators would be chuffed to work in-house for, for one client developing these huge illustration systems. And then I know others that see it as this kind of like this role where you're just churning out hundreds of near identical pieces and, and with a lack of kind of creative freedom. And when I think about the role that we and our artists play in projects, really a lot of the stuff they talk about in this show happens before it gets to us, but it's still happening. You know, like the illustration leads from big temp companies on this show are doing things that we more commonly see done by creative directors or art directors, all of that sort of early part of the process to do with why and, uh, you know, why an illustration is going to be used and what it needs to say, you know, the purpose, which then kind of forms the brief that is given to us. And part of me wishes that we could have more creative direction or concept development, or rather our artists, not me, that would be <laughs> terrible concept development, like some input into our projects in those earlier stages rather than things just coming into us right at the later stages. But the problem is I think companies just don't factor this into illustration budgets. You know, they think about the final hard labor only and very few companies are willing to pay for the time it takes to really explore and develop something with creative direction as well as illustration, you know, hiring someone for, which is why I think so much of this happens in-house with their salaried employees. And then they pay an external illustrator just to execute. But, you know, you're right. It is interesting seeing Silicon Valley companies taking this much more seriously and yes, like still doing it in-house, but hiring specific illustration teams to manage it. But I think, you know, like a big thing they talk about 
in this series is this idea of systems that can scale. And that's such a key factor when you're looking at illustration and tech or really for any huge brand style that's going to utilize illustration in a lot of places. It's something that we've, like, I guess, battled with a fair bit. This idea that the company wants to do something unique and beautiful and exciting, but also they need it to scale enormously. And it's like not feasible to just have one illustrator that they work with. You know, what if that person's busy or decides they no longer want to do that work or they become a lawyer or something? Uh, like they need to have a style that is translatable both across lots of applications and also lots of illustrators. And while I completely understand that, I can't help but kind of hate it a bit. There's like one episode uh, where he's talking to Kristen Spillman and she's talking about her time at Facebook and she was brought in to help overhaul their illustration style. And when she got there, old mate Zuckerberg, he'd already signed off on this style that used physical paper craft. And then she found in the end that this was just like not remotely feasible for a company of that size, you know, with that many illustrations needed. And so they had to pivot to something vector, something digital based so that was scalable. And again, it's like super understandable, but it's also like kind of why we see the same thing over and over and over again in tech illustration, you know, and you end up with these style guides, like you said, you know, that look like everyone else's style guides and you give these to illustrators and you somehow expect to come out the other end with something unique and ownable. But the thing is, like, if you're designing a guide that can be utilized by so many people to create the work, then inherently it has to be somewhat simple in its tools and concepts and like easily replicated, right? Like personally, I have never much enjoyed projects where we're given a rigid style guide. It's never, ever the artist's best work. You can you can get great ones where they're a bit loose and in essence, they're kind of just a really good brief, you know. But when they're too specific, it's awful and you fall into that trap of forcing illustrators to try and emulate something that they'll never quite be able to. And so the finished product looks forced and weird and kind of subpar. And there's this fight between creating a style guide to teach many people to do one thing, but still somehow keeping the rawness of illustration. And in some ways, I think this is, like often a losing battle. Like I think there are ways to do it that are like, okay, but there's always going to be a compromise in the final output. And to me, it's kind of disappointing, but it's also a hard fact of the way things have to work within companies of this size, which is why I get so confused about this whole topic. But I think, look, I have to say, like, I do find it kind of, I guess, amusing that you've got all these people in this show talking about how to develop unique identities. And then like most of the examples look so similar across, you know, like Shopify, Dropbox, Airbnb. Like I do, I respect the nuances between them and the incredible obstacles that these people are tasked with in figuring out how to make illustration work at such a scale. But for all the talk of researching millions of styles and experimenting with all sorts of approaches, everything kind of comes out looking pretty damn similar. And like, I think that's kind of, if anything, it's almost the opposite of laziness. Like I don't mean to put any of these people down or what they do. I just think big tech companies are coming to the same conclusions for the same reasons. They need something simple or humanizing and easy to scale. And that leads to very similar illustration styles because you have the same limitations and you get you know, you get different styles of illustration in different industries because the needs are different. Like editorial, for example, an illustration might be going in like one place, maybe two, like print magazine or running at the head of an online article. And it's not there to convey this like cohesive brand message. It's there to punctuate and add something to the story and make you feel something. So the goals are really different. And therefore, like the risks you can take with the artwork are different too. And like, I know that things are changing a bit. Like there's no doubt. And sorry, I know I'm just like talking and talking, but I'm very passionate about this. <laughs> things are changing a bit. And there's no doubt that there's been a push towards like looser illustration styles recently, for example, with the new Dropbox rebrand and MailChimp we've talked about on the show before. But there's still these underlying problems. And then, yeah, there's kind of this whole conversation too around how, like, how compensation works. You know, we work with licensing and that model just doesn't really align with this sort of work, not at the moment anyway, which is like fine if the illustrator is working in-house uh, in a full, you know, regular full-time job with a salary to match. But what often happens is that they hire freelancers to execute a lot of this stuff and then without licensing, it's just like not sustainable income. So there's this kind of battle there. And like Ryan talks about this from the other side at one point, like 
he says like how illustration agents come to him and say like, okay, well, how much royalty do I get from this? Or like all these things that just kind of don't apply to his industry. And for the type of work that we mostly do at Jackie Winter, it makes complete sense to price on a value-based model and also to look at the scope of work and cost specifically to that. But a lot of these larger illustration systems and projects are so fluid and so long and they really require someone to work on a more standard like full-time model and to not be taking on other work or have other commitments and for the work not to be priced on like just scope it's just like the time you spend there you know like there's this real disconnect between what each side sees as adequate compensation and like on the one hand there's value in crediting illustrators licensing their work so that they get paid for its ongoing success and seeking out people whose individual styles you want to engage but then on the other hand Ryan talks about how he's been extremely well compensated for his work with equity in these companies and what he doesn't say but is clear from a lot of the conversations throughout the show is the value you know in the long-term collaborative teamwork structure of the kind of work that he or Meg does versus one-off commissions like that that must be really rewarding and awesome to be part of the process from the beginning and to really define it it's just this total different kind of reward and each is right for a different kind of illustrator so i guess it's like it's about how do we balance these two areas of the industry that actually function quite differently both in terms of processes and compensation and how can we make space for both and i mean mm. i don't know <laughs> My answer is I have you know, no idea. As, wow. No, as well, you look, say, I just want to bring up something really quickly, which we can we can cut. But did either of you take a look at that website that I posted on our professional development channel on Slack the other day, which was free illustrations, very trendy illustrations. This is a big thing. There's a lot. Yeah. There's, a, there's, there's a, a bunch lot of these of now. Doing but very trendy illustrations, like trying to kind of encapsulate a lot uh-huh. of the sort of like themes and concepts and I guess like iconography that you would need in a tech website like this, that to me was the most depressing thing. And it kind of, it was the culmination of like both of these things coming together. But but I mean, it's, it's just stock, right? It's the same thing. It's like the people who don't value or can't afford to hire something, someone to create something bespoke will use these stock libraries. And then people who actually do value it and understand the, what you get out of having something actually unique will use you know, hire someone specific. Absolutely. Well, look, I think that's a whole other topic in itself. And I would definitely like to cover it at some point. Laura, some amazing feedback there. And I guess I will just put a kind of public call out, you know, to Mark, if he wants to do a second season and kind of needs anyone. (laughs) (laughs) There's lots that you can kind of mine over there. So thank you both for your feedback. Definitely listen to the podcast. We'll put the links in the show notes as always and move on from there. Our final link for the week from Bianca, a bit of something from um, the InVision blog, which is a making a premiere on the show. What do you got for us? Tell us about this piece. And where did you find this? Yes, How did you come did across you it? it? Honestly, I probably found it on Twitter. Classic. I, I've never, you know, I've never used InVision. I think it's a prototyping and collaboration tool. But, you know, I was digging around there. Like, well, one of our old employees has is... Out of vision. She, yes. she left Jackie Winter and has been she working this is there. Hi, Sam. Hey, Hi, Sam. Sam. Their blog's pretty mm-hmm. great. It's called Inside Design. And Envision are also one of the brands mentioned a number of times on how to illustrate a startup. So we are going full circle. This article is titled Why Bad Clients Keep Coming Your Way. And it was written by Emily Cohen, who works as a consultant for design and creative businesses here in New York. And Jeremy, you host the Melbourne chapter of Creative Mornings. And Emily was recently a guest at Creative Mornings and spoke at the Melbourne event. And while she was... Indeed, and did a workshop here. And um, I'm so jealous because Jess, who's one of our colleagues, was able to attend 
the workshop. Did you drop in at all? I did not personally, but no, yeah, Jess was there. And yeah, it was, it was amazing to have Emily out. She's um, yeah, a really font, a, a real font of wisdom. And also, yeah, she'd written a recent book as well, which is kind of how I found out about her and yeah, why I want to bring her out. I love her. And in keeping in today's, <laughs> the theme of today's episode, I thought I'd bring this article to the table because I just really love the way that Emily thinks and wanted to mm. introduce our listeners to her. She offers some really wonderful and practical advice here, which I guess builds a little bit on some of the things that Jeremy, you were discussing about kind of like systems and you know, and how you work as as a designer and, and how you think about like how you present yourself. And she sets up the article as follows. We've become an industry of blamers. As creatives, we blame clients for thrusting on us untenable and unfair contractual terms for art directing us and for not having a clear decision-making process. We blame clients when they don't meet deadlines or when they request ever-increasing and unreasonably short timelines. And we blame clients for not respecting our values and demanding lower and lower fees. We're playing the blame game, like kids who made a mess and don't want to clean it up. But all of this is within our control. We need to take more accountability for the current state of the industry. So what Emily is describing here kind of like is what you find on those industry meme accounts, you know, like this advertising life or dank art director (laughs) memes and, you know, where the crux of like... Not to be dismissed for the, you know, entertainment value. Yeah, I mean, I love them, but like, and they're so relatable, but the crux of like 90% of the jokes is usually some kind of commentary on just how awful clients are. And it's funny, Jeremy, you and I were just talking on the phone before we were recording and I can't remember what we were talking about, but it was work related and somehow it came back to a dating metaphor. And I'm going to give you another one because like what Emily is kind of describing here is, is, you know, that we all have that one friend who consistently complains about how they always attract the worst kind of human. And despite their better judgment attempts to have a relationship with that terrible human. And I guess if you're continually attracting bad clients, it's it's probably maybe time to step back and, and take a good hard look in the mirror because it's it's probably not the client or the industry that th- that is the problem. It's probably 100% you. So Emily goes on in this article to share advice on how creatives can really push back on clients and take more ownership of their actions and, and really quit this like unsatisfying blame game. And there's a lot of really solid advice in here and a lot of advice that I guess we as as producers who you know our entire job is to really define and and refine and develop our own systems and and a better way of like managing the creative process a lot of things that we you know already implement already but i thought it might be de- fun to dig into some of this and and leave our audience with a little bit more practical takeaways at the end of the episode but one piece of advice that that Jeremy i wanted to talk to you about because i thought it was quite interesting And it was under the heading Promote Your Generosity, where Emily talks about designers having a tendency to over-deliver and expect the client to inherently know and even appreciate that what we've provided is above and beyond what was agreed to or what was promised. And to me, you know, it makes it definitely makes sense to flag with your client that, you know, when something is out of scope, but you're going to do it as a favor anyway, it makes sense to flag that so that you have some kind of leverage when, you know, you really do want to push back on something down the track. But one strategy that Emily shared that I thought was interesting is where she suggests listing these additional favors actually on your invoice and indicating no charge so that your generosity has been further documented for the client in a way that they can't miss and that expresses your goodwill's actual dollar worth. And Jeremy, I'm curious to hear 
you know, how you think our clients would react to that if we started doing that. I mean, of course, we always communicate, as I said, like, when something's out of scope and, you know, sometimes it's, it's something small, like we're just, you know, the, the artist is, is happy to include an additional round of revision. But, you know, if we started to list these favors, like actually on our invoice, how do you think our clients would react? Is that viable? Well, this is a conversation that we've had a few times. We've actually done this on occasion where we kind of have actually kind of outlined discounts. Um, I do it all the time. But I think that's different. But like, but, but outlining a discount up front is different to it happening at the end of the process. Yeah, no, that's a, I mean, it's a really good point. I mean, I, I haven't actually kind of considered that. That's something that I kind of probably would I think, I, I don't know, like I always try to put myself in the shoes of what it would be like to receive that. And I, I don't know, like, I think it would make me a bit uncomfortable because I would kind of see kind mm. of an after the fact discount kind of and then be expected to like, okay, well now do I owe you a favor? Cause like you did this, mm. like, it kind of feels like, I don't know, like you did this without my approval or consent, like in a way. And now there's a power imbalance in the relationship. Like I kind of feel that there's more kind of subtle and better kind of ways to do it. I'm not sure exactly what those would be. I mean, I know you mentioned kind of concrete methods. I'm not sure I kind of, I have any yet off the top of my head, except that I can say, this, you know, one thing that I'm constantly kind of hammering on about is kind of being a client yourself. And I think that's a good way to kind of understand what expectations will be and where you can exceed them. And sometimes it's just kind of in little things in terms of how you present something or in terms of how you talk about something or the fact that you talk about it or do something kind of at all. Because I think in the work that we do, I mean, there's not many people kind of doing it. And I think it's really hard to kind of get an, get an idea of yeah, like what another illustrator or what another agency will do and kind of therefore where expectations are kind of set. But that's why, I, again, I love looking at kind of other industries and seeing, you know, how they kind of go above and beyond and then try to bring that into our practice. So that's kind of one thing I mm. could say. I just want to add to that, like, yeah, I think adding it on invoices after the fact, yeah, is a bit, might be a bit petty and received weirdly. But yeah, what you mentioned in terms about doing it on estimates, I definitely do that uh, a fair bit of the time, not to point out how like great and benevolent we are, but, but I think just because it's unrealistic for the client to think that these things would be done without charge in the future. And I'd be doing yeah, them. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you have like yeah. a, have a base, like a, you know, you, you're kind of like setting, you're setting the expectations for future. Exactly. Work. Like I'd be doing makes- them and myself a disservice by making them think that, you know, that otherwise, you know, like, and I, and I will often pop in like, you know, what the cost should have been and then add a discount to show that we've removed that and why, you know, and like, I'm talking about, you know, significant charges here, not like just like an extra hour usually, but I do think that that's far clearer and helps the client to then explain it to their colleagues and their clients down the track as well. Absolutely. I mean, yeah, the, that was really the only piece I loved this article and I love the way that Emily thinks, but that was the only like piece of advice that I thought was a little bit interesting was, was adding it onto the invoice that I was curious as to how you guys might react to that. Because for me, I probably wouldn't do it. Was there anything from either of you, was there anything that particularly stood out for you that was either insightful or news for you that you, or just something that you felt compelled to share? Emily says early on, like continuing from what you were reading before, she says she's become increasingly alive by how we as creative industry are no longer pushing back and have simply resigned ourselves to our clients' unreasonable demands or damaging behaviours and expectations. And if we don't start taking our clients' behaviours more seriously and push back more often, then our continued inaction will eventually lead to long-term negative impact on both the value and, uh, and the sustainability of the creative industry overall. 
And I really resonated with that. And I think often that's like what our value as agents is, or even as producers, like not to be difficult people pushing back on clients all the time, but to be a mediating voice that can push for fair conditions for everyone involved. So like both the client and the artist and suppliers, whatever else, to ensure that kind of like ongoing health of the industry, not just of the project, but I do think of it's, you know, in terms of the industry as a whole. And I know that's like a really big call, but I, I see it like that sometimes. And I think it helps give some purpose to what we do. But yeah, so much of what was outlined in this article is what we often see as like part of the role of producer or project manager. And what's like always key to note and that, we you know, comes up all the time is that if you're a freelance artist, you do essentially have to be your own one, you know, where you're like defending the creative vision and the scope and the budget and the timings all while like creating the work and managing client communications and everything else. And I think it was just interesting here. We talk about this stuff a lot about these skills that if you are as you know, solo illustrator, these skills that you have to build to essentially run your own business and be a manager of every single aspect of that, which sounds really hard, but it's, it's doable. And there's some great tips in here. I thought like she talked a lot about, I guess, poor management of clients. And I love this. And the same like how Mike Montero always talks about this, like putting the onus back on you as the, you know, the person being commissioned to really educate your clients. One of the things that really stood out for me was when she was talking about education in terms of like contracts and legal language, learning to actually understand the sort of intent of clauses in contracts and um, being comfortable with asking the client or their legal team to kind of explain it if you don't understand something. And I think like one of the biggest things I've learned is that like all contracts are negotiable. Like I haven't come across a contract yet where I haven't, I mean, look, I have, that's a lie, but almost all contracts, I think, uh, it's like some client is handing it to you without even really knowing what's in it anyway. They just have a boilerplate that they use. And more often than not, if there's something you're uncomfortable with or that would compromise your work or your, you know, career or income in some way, you can talk to them about it. And it's just about learning how to spot those things and how to have that conversation with a client. And it's actually like far easier than it sounds. And like often it's just about getting them to explain it in layman's terms. If they can't even explain it themselves, just ask them to strike it from the contract. Those things are really often up for negotiation. And it's like, yeah, I think a really important skill to learn. Awesome. B, thank you so much for bringing this and for giving your valuable insight as always. I think we'll wrap up for this week. Before we wrap up, our favorite segment, Thumbs Up, Thumbs Down, Shaka, the time each week we dedicate to get the good, the bad, the formidable off of our chest. Laura, what do you got for us this week? Thumbs up, thumb down. Thumbs up. Thumbs up. Hardcore thumbs up. Yep. I had my first Thai massage on Friday and like admittedly, I didn't look at all into like what Thai massage involved. It was just like the closest place to my house and it was 60 bucks an hour. Was it the rail above the... Nothing to do with the rail. (laughs) Really? Yeah. It wasn't real. But I was like lying down and then this like small woman climbed onto my thighs and started like, yeah, sort of walking my back. And I was like, I have to say, I was a little taken aback, but oh my God, best thing I've ever done. And like 60 bucks for an hour. That's insane. I'm so used to going to like stupid fancy places that charge you like $7 trillion for about a minute. And it was just, it was amazing. I'm all for Thai massage. She like... I was pretzeled. Like she just kind of, also it was like half time massage, half like regular relaxation massage. So it was like the best of both worlds. And she like folded my back into like, it was like full origami. I loved it. I oh feel great. God. Yeah, no, time massage is amazing. Like, it's amazing. The The best part is when you get, there's the rail on the ceiling because what mm. they're doing is they're, they actually hold onto the rail and walk on you as like, you oh, know, maybe she did have well. a rail. I didn't notice it. <laughs> oh my God. Or maybe it was. But in, she walked in, all over me. 
B, what do you got? Mine is, I guess, both of a thumbs up and a thumbs down. It was a thumbs up for just like the entertainment and hilarity factor. But it was my fiance's birthday yesterday. Symphony, what's up? <laughs> it's, so, it's just so weird to like say fiance. It's like really weird. Um, we just need to get married already. I, for his birthday, just surprised him at the office and sent him a cake and thumbs down to Postmates <laughs> and maybe like, where I ordered the cake but it arrived at his office the cake arrived and it said happy 23rd birthday symphony now Dave is not 23 and his name is Dave I love this so much so I feel terrible for symphony who didn't get their cake what did that cake what did the cake you ordered actually say it was just it was just like a plain ice cream cake with extra sprinkles (laughs) it was like so basic I feel bad I didn't write a message for him but you know (laughs) Oh, well, shout out to Dave. Happy 23rd birthday, Symphony. <laughs> I just I, I couldn't figure out if it was a person named, named Symphony, symphony like or if symphony like it was kind of like a symphony. Yeah. I don't know. It's all worrying. Jeremy, what do you got? I have got an audiobook that I've been listening to this week from one of my favorite funny people, um, Rob Delaney. Are you either I love Rob Delaney. Delaney. Rob Delaney is amazing. You know, yeah, we didn't think you would have. <laughs> uh, I mean, yeah, he's he's a comedian, one of the earliest ones to kind of take up Twitter and kind of become like yeah. a Twitter comedian, and then kind of um, he's like part of the reason I ever got on Twitter at all. Oh my god! And so he's he has the show called Catastrophe, which you know, with him and Sharon Horgan, dead ringer for Clara Marcus, like in our office. So I'm always <laughs> just joking about the funniest thing. But um, he is just one. He's just like someone I listen to. It's just like I've never laughed just like so wholeheartedly about something before and it was amazing to find out that he has this memoir that kind of came out a few years ago and it's called rob delaney mother wife sister human warrior falcon yardstick turban cabbage and it i love it when it's um someone writes a book and then narrates their own audiobook as well it's like it's yeah. just it's so good it's this is an occasion where i, I have to listen to it at, at one like i will not listen to it at a faster speed thank you yeah. i'm glad <laughs> yeah if you like rob delaney and you haven't heard you know or read his memoir i highly recommend it's very very funny <laughs> and i think that'll do it for this week thank you so much b thank you thank you laura thank you I'm Jeremy Wartzman. She's Laura Chan Baker. She's Bianca Bramham. And this has been Jackie Winter Gives You the Business. Our theme music is by totally unrelated to our company, Melbourne-based musician Jackie Winter. You can check out his stuff on soundcloud.com slash Jackie Winter. If you want more of the show, archives of everything and the links we cover can be found at JackieWinter.GivesYouThe.Biz. To receive all the links in our newsletter, sign up at JWG slash Is Newslettering. Again, JWG Is slash Newslettering. You can find us mostly on Instagram at Jackie Winter. That's Jackie with a Y in Winter Like the Season. And email us with anything at podcast at Jackie Winter. Winter.com. Remember, this is an enhanced podcast. If you listen to this in a supported player, you'll get to see all the links and enhanced visual content as we wrap it on. And if you work for an ad agency or design studio and want to check out our IRL version of the podcast called Open Tabs, be sure to check out opentabs.rodeo for more info. Thank you for listening. Catch you next week. Bye bye. Yeah. Whoa! <laughs> Feeling like shit. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> that like genuinely helped. That really did. Just gotta get it out in the open sometimes. Mm-hmm.